have some notes with me this morning. And it's because uh, we, we need to talk about some things that are, are the context of Colossians chapter 1 and through 4. But before we talk about the letter to the Colossians, he says a lot of things that I, as I was reading it, I was like, there's got to be more to this. And so what you got to know about the Colossian church is what we studied last week, that the Colossian church wasn't started by Paul. It wasn't planted by Paul. It wasn't pastored by Paul. It was actually in the region of Ephesus. And what it says in Acts chapter 19 and 20 is that Paul went and planted a church in Ephesus, which was kind of a, a center in that region. It was a, a hub city. It was kind of like um, St. Louis would be for the St. Louis area. All the areas around it are, are affected by that one area. And, and in some ways, maybe I'm presumptive, but in the way that um, Farmington is in our area. You know, a, a lot of smaller communities will, that are close to Farmington will go to Farmington to go to the Walmart or to Deloge. And so Ephesus was this kind of strategic city where Paul spent a good portion of time, over 18 months. And while he was there, he taught people about Jesus and what Jesus' lordship over their life would look like. And as he did that, it says that the whole region, because of what they heard and learned about Jesus, was affected by the gospel. Well, he's not talking about just their city. He's talking about the far reaches of these people would come to Ephesus. They would trade. They would sell things. They would come for their jobs. And then they would go home, many, many of them, to a, a, a town called Laodicea, another town called Hierapolis, another town called Colossae. And Colossae and these other two towns were huge towns. At one point, they were areas of trade, and they were kind of a midway point between the east and the west. They were a travel zone, and so many ideas and philosophies and, and, and things that they were learning could come through there, and they'd pick up, and they'd kind of piecemeal these different religions they'd hear about together. So when the gospel comes in there, by this time, Colossae is many ways like our area. We used to be a big travel zone, and we used to be a big place for a mine. And then at some point, businesses started leaving, and there was less investment in the community. And as a result of that, the town kind of suffers. And so right now we're going through a, a rebuilding. We're, we're trying to get the train to come through, and we're trying to get other businesses to come down here. We're, we're offering up uh, ways for them to buy buildings, and, and we're giving all these agreements, TIF agreements. And whether you agree with them or not, they're trying to get businesses here so that people will stay here and, and do business rather than driving to another town. Well, Colossi was in kind of one of those funks. They were in a, in a spot where people didn't come to them for business anymore. They were a very small town. But they were a big enough town spiritually that Paul writes a letter to them. We wouldn't have even heard of Colossae except Paul was praying for the church there. The church is what made the town important to Paul. And so we have this whole letter because Paul heard of their faith through a man by the name of Epaphras. Many believe that he came to faith through a relationship with Paul. Uh, just like another New Testament book, Philemon, Philemon also was reached by Paul. But Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians just like he did Philippians and Ephesians and 2 Timothy and a couple of others from prison. And we just studied Philippians where Paul teaches them primarily about joy. He teaches them that while he's in prison. And then he writes to the Colossian church and he has this great faith that God's going to work in them in a mighty way. But he wants to remind them whose they are and who they worship. 
Because I think sometimes we get so stuck in our circumstances that we forget that we are God's. And no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we've been through, God's bigger than them. And actually, today's message is centered around Christ in us, the hope of glory. Do you know that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus has filled you, He's given you a new heart, and He is the only hope that you have still. To the world that's lost and dying without Jesus as their Savior, they have no hope because they have no Jesus. And this Colossian church, they had heard of Jesus, they had started to follow him, they had put their trust in him, their faith. But guess what happened? They got saved, they got converted, they trusted in Jesus for everything, and then as time went on, they heard of other things, and then they heard of other ways to find hope and peace and instruction for their life, and so they started to kind of dabble in them and kind of add them to their faith in Jesus. Well, what you should know from Scripture is that Jesus... From the book of Galatians, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's like watering down gasoline. If you water down gasoline, you put it in your car, does your car run? Yes. Does it go anywhere? Probably not. It's over time, it's going to destroy it. And we try to add some other philosophies, and we try to add our own works and our, the sweat of our brow to our faith in Jesus, and what it ends up doing is it just the same thing that water in our gasoline does. It destroys the motor. And the motor that should drive us is our relationship with Jesus. And so you, if you don't understand anything else I say today, that's the main point of what I'm going to say. So in First Corinthians, or excuse me, First Corinthians, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul has already written to them and said in verse 3, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. He's writing to believers. He's writing to them as believers to remind them who they believe in and what he is capable of. He, be, he says in verse 5, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learn from Epaphras. And so he confirms this word that you heard from Epaphras. I'm confirming that it's true and that you can put your full trust in it. You can anchor your lives to Jesus. He says, Epaphras is our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras is kind of worried about the Colossian church, and so he goes to his mentor. He goes to Paul and he says, I'm concerned for them because there's some things that are causing problems. I need you outside of the situation to assess things and give me some advice. And so Paul prays for them without ceasing, and then he writes this letter as he's stirred up by the Lord. And so in verse 9 he says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom. And so what you need to know is they were struggling with these false teachers, these people that were coming in to add to their faith, they were known as Gnostics, and they came in in different places everywhere. And the Gnostics were kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses that we have today. Gnostics believe that, yes, you believe in Jesus, and that's good, um, but they didn't actually believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed that Jesus was a good teacher. And what they believed 
was based upon what they said. They're, they're, they were called Gnostics because the Greek word is gnosis, which means to know. They were in the know. So if you wanted to grow deeper in your relationship with God, and if you wanted to be more holy, then you got to be in the, on their, in their click. you got to know more. you gotta, you got to tap into what they know. You know, you guys know some stuff, but we know the deeper things. And so, of course, you could see where there's pride in this. And so you'd hang out with these guys, and they would teach you their thing, and then this is supposed to make you more holy. But the reality is, is what they were teaching was actually contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said that with our full knowledge, a person can arrive spiritually and no longer struggle with sin. And they would be released from earthly things and desires. They believed that all matter... Our bodies, um, uh, appetites, uh, the things that we see around us, all those things are evil. And so there was a group of them said, hey, in order to know the deeper things, you need, you need to become ascetic. And that word is just a fancy word that means detached from this life. And so what they would do is they would be very stringent. That they were all about what they don't do. And, and I've told you guys over and over again that Christianity is not what we don't do. It's about what we do do. It's, it's about what we actually do believe and what we actually do do in order to pursue Christ and His will for our lives. It's not, about a, bun, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's, it's following Jesus and seeing where that takes us. And so they said, and they say a lot of things, that in order to get a deeper understanding of God, you need to conquer evil, matter, and appetites by rigid discipline. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 23 Paul writes this. He says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They have no power over sin. You can do all the, you can make a checklist, and I'm going to do this every day, but will give you no power to conquer sin. None. Zero. Zilch. As a matter of fact, what you'll find is that you're basically writing a law for yourself. And Paul wrote in Romans that the law was never meant to save anybody or make them righteous. It was only meant to bring them to a place where they understood they couldn't do it on their own. The law shows us that we're sinners. It doesn't make us righteous by fulfilling it. And if you've ever tried to fulfill all 613 commands, I would challenge you, if you believe you can fulfill the law, do the first 10 commandments. And you'll find that you'll just find yourself in, dis- in desperation. You won't find yourself victorious over sin. You'll find out that there's way more sin in you than you once knew. And so Paul wrote there, he says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look good from the outside, but they have no value in spiritual growth. And he actually says there, uh, they have the appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. Religion is a word we hear so often, but what does it mean? The word religion means to relink means to try and work your way to God. It's what they were doing when they built the Tower of Babel. They, they said, you know what? God flooded us. We'll make sure he never does that again. We'll get to heaven on our own. So they built this huge tower. And what it says in Genesis chapter, it's after the flood. I can't remember what chapter it is. It says that they covered this building that they were building. It was a worship center on the outside with tar and pitch. In other words, God, you can flood us again, but we're not going to be taken under. This tar and pitch will keep the water out, and we'll still get to heaven on our own. It's pride. Man's ability to relink with God on his own is impossible. And we see that because they even built that tower in Genesis to try to get to heaven on their own. And what did God do? 
He scattered them because he knew that they would try to accomplish everything without him. And that's not why we were created. We were not created to live apart from God. And so back in Colossians, Paul is addressing this group that's struggling with, you know, this group that says, hey, to get the deeper meaning of God, you've just got to discipline yourself. You've got to do this rigid schedule of things. And, and, and then there was another group that said, you know what? The flesh, our bodies are evil anyway, and so is creation and matter. And so uh, since our spirit really is the only thing that goes to God anyway, what does it matter? Just sin all you want. There's no consequences. And so they were living in a lascivious lifestyle of just giving in to all of their fleshly desires. And you could see where that, that would overtake them. And, and, and it's, it's no good news at all. And so they were no different than the rest of the world. So these two ideas had the capability of destroying the church if the church didn't see that they were false. Because what it said was, since God is holy and our flesh is evil, that God would never come down to earth and take on human flesh because that would make him equal and evil. Well, that's not the gospel at all because what the gospel says, even, they were saying that um, Jesus coming in the flesh never happened. That Jesus, when he came and he taught all these things, it was just an emanation from God. He was actually a spirit. Nobody ever actually touched him. They just thought that they did. But that's not the gospel because it, it, that says that God's far from us and he won't come near. But we know through Jesus that he did come near to us because his name is Emmanuel, God with us. He took on human flesh. He bore our sins on the cross. He can't die in our place if he never actually lived in the flesh. He can't bleed out and die on the cross if he actually wasn't a real human being. And so it's a lie from the pit of hell. And so Paul writes to warn them, you don't need to become more spiritual through this, that it's Christ in you. It's Jesus Christ who we find our righteousness with. And actually, I missed this reference last week, and I kind of fumbled around for a little bit. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, um, Peter wrote this in verse 2. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. He said, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus, our Master, our Lord. As His divine power, His power, not ours, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You want to be more godly? You want to be more righteous in the sight of God? Jesus, knowing Him and experiencing His power, given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of God's divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. If you want to keep the corruption of the world off of you, know Jesus intimately, personally, and follow him. Not to save yourselves, but to continue walking in the way with Him. Our salvation has been procured, but it's just like a vehicle that sits outside and never has a coat of wax on it. Eventually the clear coat gets thin, eventually the paint starts to chip, and it's, it, corruption is just that. It's like rust on a car. It destroys the body, the exterior, the, the outside of it. And what God says to us is that we need to be renewed by what's within not by outward actions and not by outward disciplines. 
and, uh, and, and essentially not by giving in to the flesh and letting it do whatever it wants. And so he's writing to this group that's struggling with this question. But I read a guy by the name of Warren Wearsby. He said, diet and disciplines can be good for can be good for one's physical health. And they are, right? Paul even wrote to Timothy, he said, godliness, he said, he said God, exercise is good for the body. It's, it gives us physical health. But then Warren Wearsby says, but they have no power to develop true spirituality. They're going at it the wrong way. You can't develop spirituality by trying to change your outward actions. God changes our heart. Our heart makes a convert of our mind. We start to make different decisions. And that's what grows us spiritually, by being conformed into the image of Christ. And so he says there, in, back in Colossians chapter 1, he says, that For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul never wrote to anybody and gave them a checklist of things to do to become more spiritual. I like that. I'm a checklist guy from way back. If I am going to accomplish something, I come up with a plan. I follow the plan. And if it doesn't work out, I get all stressed out. I have nothing wrong with checklists. But if you want to grow closer, if you want to grow more godly, if you want to be more like Jesus, a checklist will never do it. Paul says the way that he was concerned for them, the way that he desired to see God work in their lives, he didn't email them a checklist. He says, I have not ceased to pray for you. Paul knew that the source of spiritual growth was God himself and is God himself. He says, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Did you know that a pastor is not the only guy that can know God's will for your life? Actually, when people ask me what God's will is for their life, I always tell them I barely know what his will is for my life. Get to know Jesus and ask him. We don't have to go to a high priest. We get to go straight to Jesus. How amazing is that? He says, uh, I pray that you would know, the no you would have the knowledge of his will, that you would have his wisdom, and that you would have spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Our goal in life is not to please men. Our goal in life is not to please our families. Our goal in life is not to please a pastor. It's not to please anybody. It's to please God. And so when Paul commends them, he says, I commend you to the Lord. You are his, not mine. And I commend to you to grow in the knowledge of what he wants for you and to do it. And then he says, walk worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? That means to be worth your salt. Does anybody know what salt is, what it used to be? We know what it is now. We put it on our food. You know, at McDonald's, they liberally put it on your food, right? And it's tasty. You get it. Fresh fries from McDonald's, they're the best. They got like 14 pounds of sugar on them, or not sugar, salt. They probably have sugar in them too. And then when you get to the bottom, there's even more. And you just, ah, you know, the salt, it gives flavor. But salt in Paul's day was how they would pay people. Salt was worth, and in some countries to this day, someone was telling me this week that to this day in some countries, they will trade salt pound for pound for gold. Did you know that? It's worth more to them because there's so many things you can do with it. Without salt in some countries where they don't have a hospital, you will die of infection. That's what they use to, to heal your wounds. It hurts, but it heals. And so salt is something that's very necessary for life. So he says, 
that you may walk worthy of the Lord, to be worth your salt, to be worth your pay. What is our pay? What, do, what is our, our inheritance from the Lord? It's eternal life with Him. He's building us a mansion. He's, he's giving us a place to live. He's, he's giving us a residence with Him for all eternity. That's our reward, is our relationship with Him. And there are other awards that go with that, but he says that you may walk worthy of what Jesus has done to pay for your sins. If you had been there and watched, not just reading the account, but seeing it, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, where he is brutally beaten and killed on the cross, if you've seen that, and if you have that image in your mind every day, when you are tempted to sin, and you know what your sin cost Jesus, you wouldn't want to go do it anymore. Because a person that you care about suffered so that you wouldn't have to die for the sins because you deserve to be punished for them. Jesus took our punishment. So why would I want to add to that? Why would I want to go back to the sin that I've been forgiven of? Well, sometimes we don't walk worthy of the calling that God has placed on our life. He says, I pray that you would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. Fully pleasing Him. He says, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We should ever be increasing of our understanding of God. And then he says, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. He says, I want you to be strengthened with power, but it, not our power, like these false teachers. Hey, you need to know what we know, and then you'll be strengthened in your faith. He says, no, I want you to be strengthened through his might, through his power, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Nothing qualifies us for our inheritance from the Lord, nothing apart from what Jesus did. He bore our sorrows. He took our pain. He took our punishment. And everything that he did is what qualifies us to be a child of the King. Everything that he did and does, continually praying for us, is what qualified us. Not knowing something deeper, not knowing a certain thing or not doing a certain thing. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So from this point, he says in verse 15, he's reminding them of the God that they trust in so they can start fully relying upon Him. Verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. The word image there means the exact representation. Jesus said to those, those that were listening, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How many times have you heard people say that God never, or that Jesus never claimed to be God? That's what this verse says. That's what that verse said in, in the Gospels, where he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's saying, I am God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews, whoever you believe him to be, there's so much argument on that. Many people believe it was Paul. Many people believe it was Apollos. But it agrees with the doctrine of the apostles. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Hebrews says, God, 
who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, showing that Jesus was creating as well, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image, there's that word again, the exact representation of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself, he's our creator, but he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, implying that the work was finished, having become so much better than the angels as he is by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This three verses encapsulates so much, but it says he is the creator God. He is the savior God. He is the sustainer God. He who created the world, he who saved us, is also sustaining the world. He's not just a watchmaker that wound up a watch and then watches it tick, waiting for it to stop. He's not just the savior that saved us and then said, finish it on your own. He says, I've saved you and I'm going to complete your salvation as you continue to trust in me. And we'll get there. We read that even in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he said, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it with, until Christ returns. And so in Colossians, he's telling them that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation, the firstborn over all creation. Now, that's not saying that he was born the first before every other human being. The word there for firstborn, it's not about time like my daughter was born before my son. What he's saying is firstborn, meaning of first importance. Jesus is the first of importance. Let me ask you, Jesus was first of importance to God and to creation. He created all that we see. In your life, if you really thought about it, if your list of priorities was laid out on a checklist, even though we don't do checklists, but if you had a checklist, what is of first importance in your life? When you need answers to a question, when you need wisdom on how to make a decision, what comes first? Do you talk to people? Do you go to your own wisdom? Or do you go to Jesus? Is he preeminent? Is he number one in your list of counselors? And when your list of counselors disagrees with Jesus, will you take their wisdom, his wisdom, over theirs or vice versa? Because I tell you what, we, especially as American Christians, many times say we trust God, but we live as though, though we are atheists. We live and say Jesus is Lord, but he's really not. So let me challenge you, and I've been challenged greatly this week. Where does my wisdom come from? Ask yourself that question. Ask the Lord that question. Where does my wisdom actually come from? Am I making decisions? Am I calling shots based on what God has said? Or am I assuming what God said? Many times that's the case. It's not that we don't want to follow God and we don't want to give Him preeminence. Many times it's just that we've been programmed. I don't know about you guys, but when I got saved, I'd been walking with the Lord for over 20 years already. Or I had been walking in the world for over 20 years. So God had to do a lot of reprogramming. And in some areas, I didn't realize that I was still programmed to walk according to the wisdom of the world. And so as I was making decisions, God was over and over again going, hey, that's not my wisdom. 
And how do you know whether or not the wisdom that you have is from God or from, from man? Well, James chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Go read it on your own time, but it will, it will filter through what is godly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Well, I'll go there. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask for the wrong things that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then he calls them adulterers. That's, that's always fun. People love being called that. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is war with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So then he talks about humility, recognizing that you may not have all the answers. I would say that we need to recognize that we don't have the answers. And then we'll be caused to go to the throne of grace and say, Lord, I need you for my wisdom. He says, therefore, verse 7, submit to God. That's the first step in finding godly wisdom, submitting to God in all things. He says, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. But the devil fleeing from you can only come from you first submitting your life to God. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. So he's saying, stop being double-minded. And that's what Paul's writing to the Colossians. He says, you guys are double-minded and you don't even know it. You're miserable because you're trying to make decisions based on two different kingdoms. And if you try to serve one kingdom, the other one will not stand. And if you try to serve that kingdom, the other one's going to have to fall out. And so if you're trying to serve from two different sets of wisdom, you're going to be double-minded, right? It's like if you're trying to please your boss and you're trying to please God, and then your boss says, I want you to lie. Uh-oh, there's a diversion in the road. What do I do? God says, submit to me and then resist the devil. Who's going to ask you to lie, God or the devil? The devil. Who's going to ask you to be, have integrity, to do the right thing all the time, no matter who's looking? God. Who also does that? God does that. Look at Jesus' life. He did exactly what he said he was going to do to please the Father. And so when we say, I know worldly wisdom says, get ahead, do whatever your boss tells you, but godly wisdom says, I have to have integrity, so I'm going to obey the Lord rather than man. And when we do that, what you'll find is many times God will go before you. Now, could you lose your job for telling your boss you won't lie? Yes. But God blesses obedience. He cannot help it. He has to. And he cannot bless disobedience. And so where does your wisdom come from? He says God is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created. God created everything in Jesus that are in heaven and those that are on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. 
So we know that creation was created for God, and it was created by God. Do you know that about yourself? You were created by God, specifically. He knew you in your mother's womb before your mother ever met you. And no doubt your mother wanted to meet you as soon as you came out. But God knew you even before then, and he loved you before you accomplished anything. But he also created you for himself. That sounds selfish to us, but God created you in order to bring glory to his name in this life. He says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Did you know that people that reject God were created for God? See, we, these Gnostics were saying that our bodies, even, even our bodies are evil. But did you know that your body's not actually evil? Your body is not evil. Now, we have a sin nature. That is evil, and it's rebellious. And God died to change those things. But our bodies are like a gun that sits on a shelf. Now, I'm not getting into politics. I'm just saying, no matter what you think, guns, forks, knives, and spoons... Uh, your car, uh, anything can be used to destroy life, right? The difference is who's wielding it. A sword, a weed eater, can be used to trim around your yard, but it can also be used to kill somebody. A spoon can be used to harm someone, or it can be used to hit on the side of a glass and bless somebody through a blessing or through a prayer or through a speech. You know, so all of these things, they're not evil in and of themselves. Our bodies are not evil. But what's running our bodies can be evil. And so he says there, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Think about scientists. I heard a story this week about a scientist that was giving a, he was giving a lecture, and he was taking people through this museum. And as he did it, Someone, they were studying the atom. They were looking at it. And if you've ever seen the drawing of an atom, and of course it's drastically changed since I was in school because of microscopes and how deeply, the nanotechnology, they can see even further into an atom and see more detail on an electron and a neutron and a nucleus and all those things. But what you notice is as you look at those, that all of those things are held together by invisible forces. And we see those invisible forces, and what happened is when this professor got done lecturing, someone raised their head, hand during the question and answer time and said, well, what's the force that's holding that together? Like, what's there that we can't see? And you know what the professor said? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. At, at best, we sometimes say, well, electromagnetic forces. But our Bible says that uh, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. In other words, all things are held together by Jesus. So what holds that atom together? Jesus. Sounds like a simple, oversimplified Sunday school answer, but that's what the Bible teaches, that God holds all things together by the word of his power. We read that in Hebrews. And so in verse 18, he says, and he is the head of the body. So God's Lord over creation. He created all things, and all things exist for him. He holds all things together, verse 17 said. And verse 18 says, he is the head of the church. He is the source of the church. He's the origin of the church. He's the leader of the church, and he's the ruler of the church. 
He says that he is the head of the body. Our body is the leader of our body. Our body is the source from wisdom, and he's the the leader of our body, the ruler. It tells our hands what to do. It tells our feet what to do. It's the decision center. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, that word again, that he may have the most importance, that he may be leading it. Verse 19, he's refuting these Gnostics. He says, it, is, it pleased the Father that in Jesus all of the fullness of the Godhead should dwell. I heard somebody this week teaching about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, we always think about, like, God took on human flesh, but God is glorious, and nobody can stand in his presence. Where's his glory at while he's inside of this human body? God couldn't even be contained in 1 Kings chapter 8 in the temple. His glory was so strong that it just emanated from the building, that Solomon was giving a speech, and he was interrupted because the glory of the Lord shined forth so brightly and so heavily that Solomon just had to stop and say, Lord, who are we to build this huge temple? And yet you can't be contained in a temple. And yet God was contained, all of him, in Jesus Christ. And when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he went up there and it, just for a few moments, he let his glory pour forth. And I heard this guy, Ken Graves, preaching on that. And he said, isn't it amazing that not so much that his glory shined through for a few moments, but, but for the rest of his life, as far as we know, Nobody saw that glory. It was just in that one instance that his body, somehow he contained his glory inside of it. It would be like having a, a burning flame inside of a piece of Tupperware. The, the glory is going to come out. It's going to burn. It, it's going to shine brightly. And yet all of the glory of God was contained in this man, Christ Jesus. And it pleased God to do so. Verse 20, By him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things that are on earth or things that are in heaven, having made peace with God through the blood of his cross. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. He says it pleased God to dwell in Jesus and by him to reconcile all things to himself. It pleased God to do it this way. We are brought near to God. We are reconciled by Christ. So if you want to know what's going to change you and make you more godly, it's just that. It's Jesus himself. He's the only one that can do it. And we change as we get to know him more and as we spend time with him. You ever heard the, the phrase, um, you are who your friends are? <laughs> That's what my dad used to say to me. Um, we become like the people we hang out with. Uh, you guys who have seniors that are graduating, you know that. You guys that have kids. You watch them, and they hang out with certain friends, and you're like, hey, I like so-and-so. I'm glad they're hanging out. He's becoming more like that person. And then there's the other ones where you're like, I don't want you hanging out with them. When you get done hanging out with them, you come home, you are a turd. You're, you're not any fun to be around. You're disrespectful. You say things to me you never said to me before. You're becoming like your friends, and I'm sick of it. Now, many of us need to be okay with saying that to our kids, by the way. You can tell your kids when you're displeased with them. They need that. They've given you to them for correction. I, I have to correct my daughter I, all the time, and she doesn't like it. But when I see things in her that are going to be 
bad down the road, they're easier to get rid of now. But I also need to praise her when she's doing well. You know, I also need, and I was telling somebody last night, I don't just tell Lucy that she's doing good when it's just her and I. For her, if I tell her I'm proud of her in front of people, she just lights up. She's, she's encouraged. She's strengthened. It renews her confidence that dad's not just setting a standard I can't hit, that sometimes I do hit it. But there are many things he doesn't like that I do. So I need to aim to please him. And our Father in heaven is just like that. If you will spend time with him, you'll become more like him. If you will spend time with him when you're doing wrong, you'll be convicted about it, and he's going to chasten you. Sometimes he's going to give you a spanking, or what I call a hiney whooping. But he's doing that because he loves you. But when you're doing right, you're going to have joy. That's going to be his confirmation that you're walking in newness of life, that he's transforming your habits and your appetites. But if you don't spend time with him, he won't confirm those things because you're not listening for him. If you don't spend time with him in fellowship with him, with just you and him one-on-one, or with you and him and other believers, uh, you're not going to be disciplined because you're not going to hear some people go, hey, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Are you sure that that's an okay thing? And each one of us need people around us. Surround yourselves with people that want to please God because they will tell you what needs to be said, even though it might hurt your feelings. Surround yourself with godly people. You will become like God, the people you hang out with. So he says, verse 21, and I'll close with this last section. Uh, he says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind because of your wicked works. He's preaching to people that are sinners, saved by grace, transformed. Reconciled means to change thoroughly from being something else to being something else. He says, you've been reconciled to God. He says, you were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now Jesus has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless before God above reproach in his sight. God saved you to present you new and changed in front of his his father. He didn't save you to leave you the way you were. He cleans the fish that he catches. And if he's not cleaning you, you're not his. And then he says, if indeed, see, God's going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Verse 23, here's our part. If indeed you continue in the faith, you have to continue. You have to continue pursuing God, seeking his face daily. And he says, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. We can be tempted away from the faith by philosophies, by works, by trying to earn God's favor on our own. Uh, We need to make sure that the things we believe actually line up with what Jesus has said. He says, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul says, I've given my life to preach this message. And the things that you're trying to integrate into your faith, they're not ways to God, and they're, going, they're like cancer into your faith. So beware, cancer can kill your faith. I'm not talking about physical cancer. I'm talking about false teaching, which is spiritual cancer. So next week, we'll look at Paul speaking specifically about how this has affected his ministry. Before we get there, I just want to challenge you. What do you believe that will make you more like the Lord? Is it a philosophy? Is it a certain list of do's and don'ts? 
Are you being tempted away from simple faith in Jesus? I heard a pastor say one time, his name's Chuck Smith, he said, you know, people were asking him, man, God's used you in an amazing way to transform the lives. And in the 60s, he had planted the original Calvary Chapel. And he showed up and he just started teaching the Word of God and he relied upon the Holy Spirit to teach him and to teach others and to disciple, make disciples, and to share his faith. And, and people said, man, God's used you in a mighty way. What's your formula? And of course, we do that, right? We see people do something we're like, how did you do that? Whether it's working on something, building something, we're DIY people, right? How'd you do that? I fixed my wife's brakes this week and how did they do that? So I got on YouTube and I watched a video. <laughs> and what Chuck Smith said was, I got really good at hearing what God had to say to me and obeying it. I got good at hearing God's voice and doing what he said. Man, if we would just go back to that, how simple does life become? So, Father, I thank you for Paul and his obedience to you. I thank you for his words of encouragement to the Colossian church. And Lord, I thank you that because they were written down, we get to obtain and understand and see that Paul wasn't calling them to a system of religion, trying to relink with God on our own. He was calling us to simple faith in Jesus, to let no one draw us away from simple faith in Jesus, and to call us to simple obedience to Jesus. And so, Lord, this week, as we contemplate what you've just told us from your word, I ask, Holy Spirit, fill us. Convict us of our sin. Show us where we're prideful and not willing to listen. Uh, help us not to be distracted. As we were studying just a few weeks back, the parable of the sower, where Jesus had told them that some of the seed of the word of God landed in, uh, in soil that was covered in weeds. And because of that, it was unfruitful because it was choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Lord, please don't let the cares of the world destroy us. Help us to continue in the faith. And Lord, please weed our lives and give us the faith to, to pull out the weeds that are in our lives that are actually drawing us away from you. I thank you for your church, Lord. I thank you for your ability to continue to grow us in our faith in you. And I pray that you would use these simple truths that we're trusting in to turn upside down this valley and the regions surrounding it and the earth, Lord. Use your church. Purify your bride. Present us holy before your Father in heaven and help us just to remain faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.